And let's stand together, James 5, 19 through 20. Let us hear God's word. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Lord, we read that section of scripture and Lord, we are all thinking either of our own wandering or those whom we love who have wandered from the truth. Though we pray that this time in your word would be an opportunity for us to see not only the beauty of who you are, but also, Lord, the responsibility that you've given us to be faithful brothers and sisters of Christ. Allow me as your messenger to be faithful or to simply be your mouthpiece for this text. And Lord, what we, what we don't know, would you teach us? What we don't have, would you give us, Lord? And Lord, what we still are not, would you um, build in us through the, the ministry of the preaching of the word of God? We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's really hard to read these verses without being reminded of the third stanza of the song that we sang this morning, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. This is what it says. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Now, I haven't talked to the author because they're not around anymore. But I think the author is trying to get to the point of the fact that Christians struggle with wandering hearts. And just like we have said throughout the book of James, this is not so much about someone else. <laughs> All these issues are about us. These are true about regular, normal Christians who are seeking to live their lives for God's glory. And throughout this letter, James has talked to us about our tendency to wander in moments of doubt, in moments of confusion and exhaustion, that we experience in the moments of our trial. He's cautioned us that our hearts will wander in subtle ways because our own desires are seeking to be satisfied at whatever cause. We wander from being a loving community to being one that is prejudiced or shows partiality. We wander into living out of a religion that is focused on what we say rather than how we live. We wander when we seek to live our lives independently rather than depending on God for our plans and our goals. 
we wander from the truth and make war with others rather than seeking to make peace with them. We wander by being swept away by the wisdom of the world rather than anchoring ourselves in the wisdom of God. And we wander when we say we believe in God but fail to come to him in the midst of our struggles. And we wander when our mouths are out of control and we gossip, gossip and slander and bring destruction to others. Friends, I've just given you in brief form a snapshot of the book of James. James has been appealing to those who identify themselves as brothers and sisters in Christ to remain in the truth for fear that they would wander away. To, to nurture us to, toward maturity in Christ because he knows that the pressure of the wisdom of the world is great. And so the tone and the heart of this letter is to lovingly and pastorally confront God's children in areas that they struggle and to urge them to remain steadfast under trial. James is saying, when you face that trial, whatever it may be, I want you to remain steadfast and endure even in the face of temptation, even when the desires of your heart are screaming, give in, give up, because God is at work and he's at work in you, maturing you as a believer and equipping you with the tools to live life with joy and for his glory. And James is not sugarcoating anything, is he? He knows your trial is hard. He knows that there are times you just want to throw in the towel and walk away. He knows that it's easier to go with the flow and fit in with the sinful culture around you. But his honesty is refreshing. It's penetrating, it's painful, it's revealing, but it's truly refreshing because it exposes our hearts and the various ways normal, everyday believers struggle in this world. Now, at the end of this letter, James doesn't finish up with some kind of benediction or a blessing like many of the letters do. He doesn't greet friends that he knows around the Mediterranean. Instead, he ties this letter together with these two verses of encouragement and challenge. And here at the end of chapter five, James has been asking some questions. Let me remind you of what they are. Is any among you suffering? Is any among you cheerful? Is any among you sick? And for all three of those questions, the answer was a form of prayer. And he continues with those questions now by asking this final question, is anyone among you wandering? And the answer for this question is pursuit. Let's think through that here. As James is, is winding up this letter, He's saying in these last two verses that there is a call for the church to rescue the wandering brother for the sake of his soul. 
There are those who wander. There are those who rescue. And then we see, thirdly in this text, the wonderful benefits of the fruit of being used by God in this process. Now, I think James' goal here in, in giving this instruction is not so much to speak to those who are wandering, but it's to speak to those who are not wandering to help those who are wandering. <laughs> and friends, that's a wonderful yet daunting responsibility that he places on our shoulders. Notice, first of all, though, the problem of wandering. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. Boy, it's just a few words, isn't it? But it's packed with meaning. It's packed with implication. What James says in these last two verses is addressed to those who identify themselves as believers scattered around in churches around the Mediterranean. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. So in this first phrase, we have a, a warning, first of all, and then a wandering. There's a warning, first of all, for professing believers. Now, I would invite you to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Mark in chapter 4, because we're going to spend a little bit of time in there to begin our understanding of what it is that James is getting at. Now, let me remind you that James is the half-brother of Jesus, and much of what James has to say can be traced back to the very words of Jesus, in particular, a Sermon on the Mount or times when he is instructing people. James pulls from that and talks about very similar themes. And this is true of our text today. Jesus taught a parable that we know as the parable of the soils which is critical for us to understand the nature of a true believer. In this parable, Jesus takes advantage of regular life. As he's teaching, he looks out and he sees a, a farmer going out, sowing the seeds on land, and he tells this particular parable. And the point of the parable is to reveal four kinds of hearts or soils that receive the seed of the gospel in some way, shape, or form. And it's a parable that can be found in Matthew chapter 13, Mark 4, as well as Luke 8. We're going to spend our time in Mark's gospel here just to kind of walk through this. And we're looking at Mark chapter 4, verses 13 through 20. And this is where we'll read Jesus' interpretation then of the parable that he is given. And what we're going to find here then are four kinds of hearts, four different soils that he brings to our attention. First of all, there's going to be the hard heart. Then there's going to be the shallow heart. Then there's going to be the infested heart. And then we're going to see the fertile heart. And I'm going to walk through it here and just identify then what we find here is going on. So we'll pick it up at verse 13. Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and those who are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. 
So the first group then are those who are the hard heart, the paths back then. This is the paths. Basically, they would, they would have sections, often like in a square or some area like that, and they would, they would throw the seed from those paths into the ground. And some of that seed would fall on the path. And what's happening here is the seed is snatched away like a bird by Satan. Then in, in verse 5, we continue to read, sorry, sorry verse 5, 16, we continue to read. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then with tribulation or persecution arises on the count of the word, immediately they fall away. Okay, So here you have the shallow heart. There's immediate joy. There's the appearance of new life. But we're told here, that tribulation and persecution come on account of the word and they fall away, they stumble, they drift. Then you have the infested heart, verse 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So here, again, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things. You see, you hear the language that's being used here by Jesus and how, how, how James talks about the desires of your heart. He, 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 he goes after the, the, the desire for riches um, and just the wisdom of the world. And then we have the fertile heart, verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Now, friends, here's the point. Here's what's important for us to recognize is that the, 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 all four of these hearts can be present in the context of the church. There may be the appearance of genuine faith, but there's only truly one heart that has received the seed of the gospel by faith and that has produced fruit. It's the fertile heart. And friends, that is a warning to us personally, and it is a warning to the church corporately. Are we okay just being settled, saying, you know what, these four hearts are just going to be present in the church, and we're all right with that? Or are we saying, wait a second here, we don't want people to think in some way, shape, or form that they have a genuine faith when they really don't? Is it loving to let people continue on living on the path or, or having that, that heart that is choked out by the world? The answer is no. And, and week after week, or when we're in Bible studies, what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure that those particular hearts soften. And of course, God is the only one that can do that. And that he is at work. And what we see then are genuine hearts who receive the word of God and then produce fruit. So friends, we might not like what Jesus is saying in this parable. We might complain that he's being harsh, but there's no doubt that he's right. And as such, we must use his parable as a guide to how we look at ourselves and evaluate the church as a whole. Our goal is to see the word of God bear fruit in a fertile heart that has been prepared by God. To that end, 
One has said one of the best places to evangelize is in the church. And I don't think that's an untrue statement. I think if you looked at in particular at the church in America, um, it's, 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 a, it's a fertile field. Because in many places, the gospel is not proclaimed. It's watered down. It's replaced. It's adjusted. It's somehow, you know, it's somehow adorned with other things. Now, friends, why is that true? Because churches are full of non-believers, professing believers, as well as true believers. They're full of hard hearts, shallow hearts, infested hearts, and fertile hearts. Now, if we believe or assume that all those in the physical church are true believers, then we have our spiritual heads in the sand and are not taking the word of God seriously. Again, that's why when I or others preach, we recognize that there can be someone who has been a part of Gateway from the beginning, who has been diligent and active and serving and functioning in the church, who may not actually truly be a believer because they've taken on a form of religion rather than having the seed of the gospel actually take root in their heart. Now, now hear this. We're, we're not here walking around trying to be seed and fruit police. All right? We're not walking around with kind of like apps on our phones where we can grid people and say, okay, there's a, you know, there's a hard heart right there or you know, whatever. We, that's not the point. The point is this, is this is true. We can't see it. It's somewhat invisible. But the, the ministry of the word has to go forward. And I don't know where you've been. And some of you can testify this is exactly who you were. You were active in the church. You grew up in the church. You were, you, know, you, you were part of that community, but it wasn't until you were an adult, until you actually bowed the knee and you realized I was going through a form of religion, but God really didn't grip my heart until this time. We must recognize that that is true, friends. So, so we see that in light then as, or as, as a backdrop, as a, as, a, as a willing understanding of how to approach this text. Because James, throughout this letter, has been talking about my brothers or brethren as the general overseeing people of God. And yet in the midst of all that, he's been warning and he's been pushing. You can drift here. You can drift here. You can drift here. So there's really two groups of people that he's referring to. The first group, of course, would be professing believers who need to be converted. In other words, people who profess to be believers but actually aren't. They need to be converted. Then there are true believers who need to be recovered. We all know that as we face various trials, we're likely to stumble and fall. But a true believer gets up, confesses his sin, turns to God in humility, and begins to walk again. And true believers can be seduced by the wisdom of the world. That's why James is bringing it up. But if you go back to chapter 2 and verses 14 through 26, you'll notice that there are professing believers who have a vain faith. They say one thing, but they live another. And there are some professing believers who have no faith at all. And, and you might think that that's who James is addressing when he talks about the rich in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. So the goal is either conversion 
or it's restoration. All right? So this is the warning for professing believers. Secondly, there is this wandering then of professing believers. The big category, professing believers then. Again, my brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth. You'll notice later in the text, in verse 20, James describes the wanderers as sinners. The Greek word for wanderer is really interesting. It, it, it comes from the word um, plano, from which we derive the word planet. And the idea is that this is something that wanders. All right? So it's a wandering planet, a heavenly wanderer. And James here is using the word to describe someone who's been cut loose from the church and is wandering alone in the darkness. So the word has the idea of going astray. Even the word apostatize is how this is sometimes translated, or the, the idea of what is happening in a person's life. This isn't some absent-minded, unconscious wandering, but a conscious wandering that is rejecting the truth. And we're living in a day when it is popular or even politically correct to believe that there is no absolute truth. But unfortunately, when you say there's no absolute truth, what have you done? You've just gone against your whole statement. You can't say there's no absolute truth because that is an absolute statement. right? But as Christians, we know that there is absolute truth. Now, a little caveat here. Sometimes we claim things to be absolute truths that are not absolute truths cultural things where legalism kicks in. We want to be careful that we understand what that is meaning. It is truth that has come down from above. And James, James says it's the wisdom of God. And that wisdom is revealed to us in the pages of his word. So how does this wandering from the truth take place? What does it look like? Well, there's two ways that it's typically fleshed out. We can wander doctrinally and we can wander morally. We can wander in what we believe and how we behave. But usually the two go hand in hand. So let me give you a couple of examples. Um, here are a couple of examples. Parents who have children who come out of the closet and embrace a homosexual lifestyle. Now, friends... Those parents are facing extremely difficult relational and emotional challenges. Some capitulate to the spirit of the age and embrace their children's behavior as acceptable before God. The heart pangs of the familial relationship and the potential of being viewed as bigoted by the world move them to reevaluate what the scriptures clearly teach. And so in this case, it's a moral issue that results in moving away from God's truth to embrace something foreign to and opposite of his truth. And I would say that the tension, this tension is happening more and more, and the pressure to give in to the world continues to grow. But if we have Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we bow down to him, not the spirit of our ever-changing culture. If you find yourself in similar situation, fight to uphold the line of Scripture that teaches that homosexuality is sin. In other words, this is what Scripture says. You can't get around it. This is the truth. 
But at the same time, be loving and merciful to those who are confused by the ever-changing spirit of the age. And so this is one of the difficulties for parents who struggle with this, is to actually say, I'm staying with what Scripture says, and I can do nothing other than that if I'm going to be faithful to God. But at the same time, I'm going to deal with you in love, deal with you in mercy. It's a hard thing, friends. But the, the way this, this happens is there's a moral issue then that somehow you're, you have to deal with. And as a result, you have a choice. I'm either going to stand on the line of Scripture or I'm going to capitulate to the world's thinking. Here's another example. Uh, what happened when I came to California? This is, it was kind of like, bleh, welcome to California. But it was, it was the people who promote grace as the all in all. Now, I love grace. Understand that. As the church, we need to love grace. But there's a form of, of grace that the church promotes that really isn't biblical grace. It's basically saying you should not say anything harsh from the pulpit, or Christians should not say anything that would be confrontational whatsoever. We need to be people who are exercising grace, which basically means don't say anything. Just love on people, because love is all you need, right? I think someone wrote a song like that. In other words, don't talk about sin. Don't tell them what they can and cannot do, even if the scriptures do. Don't condemn them. Just love them. Let grace do its work. Elements of truth distorted because it's not complete. The problem, however, is that with that kind of thinking is that one must willfully choose to ignore large portions of Scripture that teach the opposite. That people who are offered the gospel don't actually get saved because sin is not discussed, therefore sin is not addressed as the issue. What becomes the issue is to know that God loves you. All right, well, knowing that God loves you is part of the gospel. But Jesus didn't go to the cross so he could give you one big loving hug. Just come here. I want to give you a big hug. No, he didn't come to give us a big hug. He came to do something. And that doing something is incredibly significant. I think our American Christian culture would rather have the hug than the cross. Now, it's a good thing to have a loving God. That's the good news. But the good news is only understood when we've had the bad news. And so this is what I'm talking about. There's a a distortion of theology then that causes us to wander. And that's what's happening here. True grace, that which we call amazing grace, is honest about the bad news and therefore pleads with people to embrace the good news. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Hear that amen. Also, when our mantra is grace, it can turn into a theology of not holding to truth that opens the door to what's called antinomianism. I know, that's a big word. Antinomianism simply basically means anti-law. And the idea in particular as it's applied to Christians is that People live their lives identifying as Christians, but saying, I am not bound by his law. Okay. So I want, I want all the benefits of the gospel, 
but I am not having to live my life according to what Jesus says. And it's like, well, what kind of Bible are you reading? Well, they're not. It's an attitude that says, I want, I want the best of this, but I don't want to take responsibility for my sin. Now, friends, in this case, it's a distorted theology that paves the way to living in a way that is sinful and unwilling to be held responsible or accountable for our actions. Now, friends, this is why some pastors um, recently in history who have fallen into moral sin, in particular in the area of sexual sin, can rationalize the rightness of them stepping back into the pulpit. Here's the thinking, because grace has covered my sin, I'm forgiven. And they'll say, I mean, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He lied about and, and had her husband murdered, and God didn't have him step down as king of Israel. And you'd be right. God was undeservedly gracious to David the king. But you're not a king. You're a pastor. A pastor is certainly a... New Testament responsibility, and there are specific qualifications that are laid out for that particular area of ministry. One is a king, another one is a shepherd, a pastor. And you have disqualified yourself by violating those qualifications. The point I'm trying to make is that people in the body of Christ can do and will wander from the truth. And how does it happen? Well, there's three ways. There's probably I could probably say more, but just three that came to my mind. Sometimes it can happen in small ways. A small way could be embracing psychology rather than what God's Word says, for example. Or regularly staying out of church, which God calls His children to be doing. It might seem like small ways, but they are... They are the beginnings of embracing things that are not the truth. It can happen by degrees. That conversation with that coworker who is the opposite sex starts with good intentions, but over time, an emotional attachment ensues. In a different circumstance, someone tells a little lie here and a little fib there, and before long, your web of lies is starting to catch up with you. Something bad happens to you or against you, some injustice, some hurt, and you begin to share it with others. But the more you share, the more your mouth is not bridled. And before long, you're gossiping and slandering and tearing people down who are not there to defend themselves. And it can happen overnight. When someone is fed up to try to live life according to God's plan. They've tried and they've tried, but God hasn't come through to them. So now they're going to charge down a different path, and it's a path that may result in divorce. It's a path that may result in finding a church they can, where they can coast in their rebellion. It's a path where they're no longer being held accountable. Friends, we can wander. And we do wander. We wander doctrinally, we wander morally, and more often than not, those two things are all bound together. And James even speaks a little bit about that when he brings in this idea of a double-minded 
man is unstable in all his ways. Chapter 1, verse 18. And as he walks through his, his, his letter, he's dealing then with issues of wandering, as I've mentioned here. Now, whatever the specific issues are, wandering doctrinally, morally, or both, James considers wandering from the truth something to be extremely serious and needing of radical attention. So when someone joins Gateway Bible Church, one of the things you hear me saying in some way, shape, or form is this. Is it your desire to partner with Gateway Bible Church for the sake of your soul? In other words, to help you mature in Christ. But also in that statement is the partnership that says there are going to be times when someone's going to need to speak some truth in love to your heart for your very soul. And we as a church family, just affirming that whole process, say, amen. We ask the same thing of the church. Is it your desire then with this person who comes to join the church to partner with them and to help them in their growth toward Christ-likeness? And that implies and also includes in times when they are wandering from the truth. There's a partnership, there's a, there's a fellowship, there's, a, there's a, a unity that happens in the church because it's one thing to say, oh yeah, you know, come and be by my side in the good times and we're praising God. But what happens when I'm wandering? Well, if we're the church and we're not doing anything about that, shame on us. Friends, it's just, just a reality and, and we're going to see the importance of that. I'm reminded of the Old Testament proverb that says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And our goal as a church should be that when we do need to confront and speak I would say words of, uh, of truth in love to someone who is wandering, that there will already be a relationship, there will already be an understanding that our desire and goal is for their spiritual well-being. So having looked at the problem of wandering, we now need to consider the ministry of pursuing, the ministry of pursuing. James turns his attention from those who have wandered to the truth, from the truth and addresses the need for someone to bring that person back. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. So, first of all, what? There's a call to bring him or them back. James uses the Greek word epistrepho, which means to convert to change direction, to turn back. This is no small responsibility. This is life-saving work, friends. And it's the kind of ministry that is usually, first of all, reluctant. We don't get up in the morning and say, yippee, I get to confront someone today, I get to chase them down. No, no one wants to do that. But we do it because of our partnership in the gospel, and in the ministry. We love one another, and we do it then reluctantly. 
Secondly, it's difficult. Gently and graciously confronting people who have wandered away from the truth can be very difficult at times. Often there are many challenges as people try to avoid the necessary conversations. It's also draining. Taking, or talking to people about their spiritual wandering is draining. It's spiritual warfare that must be bathed in prayer. And usually when you're engaged in this kind of conversation, it's exhausting. It's time-consuming, which kind of smacks against our Bay Area culture. It's just busy, full of all sorts of activities. If we are too busy with our lives, we can neglect the care of others who are our responsibility. The question is, will we take time to fulfill the responsibility that God has put on our shoulders? It is, number five, spiritually exhausting, confronting sin, dealing with worldly wisdom that wants to rationalize the word of God away so as not to be bound by it. All right, trying to, trying to deal with arguments that spin just simply to get out from underneath the, the truth of God's word is, is exhausting spiritually. And then thinking of, of passages or places that, that you can take someone to help them understand why what they're doing is wandering from the truth and, and the, the severity and the danger of it, as well as how you love them and how you want to help them. And finally, it's, it's just heartbreaking, isn't it? When people wander and you see that, that families are, are broken as a result, potentially, or, or, or marriages are, are hurting, or, or, or there, people are uncertain about what the future may hold unless there's some change that takes place here. All of that mess is heartbreaking. But friends, we are called to be pursuing, and we're called then to be rescuers. Secondly, from the what, we move to the who. Who is to bring him or them back? Now, notice that this command given by James is given to the whole church, not just the elders or the pastors. He's speaking to my brothers about anyone in the body wandering from the truth. Now, unfortunately, and this is not true of Gateway, but this has been true in my pastoral experience, unfortunately, it's common attitude among God's people that the kind of thing that we're talking about this morning is the unique responsibility of the elders, that the rest of the body, when they see a person wandering from the truth, rather than go to them personally, will instead seek out an elder, seek out a pastor, and tell them, hey, this is what's going on. Because while you're in leadership, that's your responsibility. But that would be to willfully disregard the scriptures and to burden the eldership with responsibilities that God has put on your shoulders. This instruction, this behavior, this activity is for all of us in the church, according to James. And friends, it's a reminder that bringing someone back from their wandering from the truth is supposed to be a community project. And biblically speaking, you can say to the pastor, Pastor, we pay you to do that stuff for us. We don't have time or the know-how or, uh, and anyway, it's your job. It's your responsibility. 
But this text and many of the texts that we will read next will show that such an attitude is sinful and selfish. We're going to bounce around here from a number of passages, primarily in Galatians, in Matthew, um, and then in Jude also. But I just want to highlight, first of all, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, it's the same word here, I'd have caught, um, of, of a person who has the, the, the story of the Good Samaritan who fell among thieves, right? He's overtaken by this transgression. You who are spiritual should restore him. Well, see, you who are spiritual, that should be the leadership. Look, friends, the spiritual people are those who are truly God's children. This is not separating classes of, well, pastors and people. This is the body of Christ. And if you're the body of Christ, this responsibility is for you. Secondly, if we turn to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Who's responsible to go? You are, okay? Just reinforcing here what James is identifying. This is, this is, the, this is everyone's responsibility. So who's to bring um, him back, that's the responsibility of the body. Then, how? And this is probably where we start getting into some of the difficulty, and hopefully this is going to be a help to you to understand what Scripture says about how we are to go about doing this. And first of all, I would say that there needs to be a right attitude. And that attitude, I've, I've listed four points from these four different texts that we're going to look at. Matthew chapter 7, if you want to turn there, Matthew chapter 7, we'll notice a couple of things there. But the word here is, is the word considerate. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, often known as the golden rule, says this, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And so I ask you the question, if you were in their shoes, people who cared about you, because you are struggling. How would you want to be treated? How would you want the body of Christ to come and sit down and talk with you about the fact that you're wandering, right? So you have an attitude that is considerate. considerate. You don't go, you know, go in with full guns, you know, full barrels. You go in there with a consideration to say, you know what, this might be me one day. And how would I want to be treated? Secondly, and this is stay, stay in Matthew chapter 7. We've talked about this. This is in Matthew 7, 1 through 5 uh, passage where it says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. When you when, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? When there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we're focusing here on verse 5, saying, having done that. In other words, it takes great humility to say, I've got a log in my eye. And the wonderful thing here about how, how the dynamic of the church works is that when you, when you are aware of a brother or sister who has wandered away, one of the first things that you need to do, obviously confess your sin and, and pray, but it is to be honest about that log that is in your eye. 
It is a means by which the body of Christ says, before I go to that person, I've got to check myself so that I can. Okay, And that's what's going on here. So you don't go with a judgmental attitude, but a humble one, because you have had to deal with your sin before God before you came to this person. Now Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 again. Galatians 6 and verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any trespass, transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. So there's a gentleness. Now see, I think a lot of people are afraid of this whole topic because they've actually seen or experienced abusive churches in action. But this is not abusive, being considerate, being humble, being gentle. That's not abusive, is it? These are attitudes that flow out of the gospel, that flow out of the fact that we understand that life is difficult and that we are, we are tempted, we're prone to wander. And therefore, we need the body of Christ to help us. And finally, Jude, Jude 22 through 23. This is not necessarily a passage you would normally think of, but I think what's incredible about the story of Jude is that it has this, this kind of harsh message to it, but at the same time, there's a gentle approach that he gives. He says in verse 22 and verse 23, have mercy on those who doubt. And the idea of that is they're wavering. Have mercy on them. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The idea of mercy is certainly an expression of love, but it's withholding maybe what you feel that they deserve. It's merciful. You don't treat them in kind. You don't say, well, they did this to me, therefore I'm... No, you, you are merciful. Now, friends, contrary to what much of the church thinks or the world believes, the ministry of pursuit, which is often called church discipline, is not a ministry of condemnation. It's a ministry of love, true friendship, and loyal partnership in the gospel. And it's essential for a church to be healthy. So we have to have the right attitude. Secondly, we need to have the right goal in mind. Again, Galatians chapter 6, we're told there, brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. That word restore is the, is the word that's used to restore a broken bone. Bring this person back to the place that they are mended. And then, as we continue on in Matthew chapter 18, we find the goal is to win a brother. Now, Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is the classic text on what is called church discipline. I prefer to call it the ministry of love. And this is what Jesus himself instructs us to do. So if you're one of those people that says, well, you know, I'm, I'm a what would Jesus do? I'm a red letter person. This is what Jesus said. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. That at every charge, um, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So the goal here in your going, in your confrontation, isn't your condemnation. It's your care for their soul. My friends, we all stumble. We all need each other. And we commit to help one another when we are united as a church. In good times when we're walking with God, as well as in difficult times when our hearts are wandering from the truth. So friends, a few questions here. Is this your attitude and your goal? What kind of relationship do you have with the church? Is it a consumer's relationship that says, I'm here to get my needs met. You are to serve me. What do you have? Many people approach church that way, don't they? Or is it a rescuer's relationship that says, I'm living out my Christian walk here with the mentality that I'm part of the ongoing work of redemption that is at work here at Gateway, so I'm willing to be a helper for those who may be in need. So do you work to have relationships that press beyond the casual and the surface level so that you can know the struggles that people are going through? Friends, if we're all going to be honest this morning, we will all agree that There isn't a week that goes by where somehow, in some way, we need to be called back. Now, thankfully, sometimes that calling back happens because we pause and we open the word and God ministers to us through the word. Or we're reminded of of truth in the course of a day. But there are times when there are those that need to come and speak into our lives, friends. We wonder. Right? So there's a right, a right goal, right attitude, and there's a right method. Both Galatians and Matthew give us wonderful patterns and guidelines for restoring a brother or sister who's wandered from the truth. In Galatians, the Christian brother who is pursuing the one who has wandered seeks to help by carrying that person's load, that burden. With that person who is struggling and suffering until that person can carry their own load once again. That's the idea of burden bearing that we have in Galatians chapter six. So you help that person carry their load to the point that you've worked with them that they can carry that load by themselves. There's a process there, which means it takes time. (laughs) This is not just a Tuesday night meeting and there it is. This is one that's saying I'm committed to you as part of the church. In Matthew, the passages that we read, we have this four-step process. There's a one-to-one, go to the person one-on-one and confront them with their sin with the goal of winning them over. And you exhaust that step. You might do that a number of times. And if that doesn't work, then you bring two or three other people in and hear this, not necessarily to stand with you, but to stand alongside you. Because it could be that your understanding of the situation has been distorted and that you're actually the problem. 
And the two or three witnesses are there to make sure that whatever the conflict is or whatever the issue that's being brought up, they're, they're, they're witnesses to say the process is being handled well and that what's being said is actually true. And then they're there to counsel the whole, the whole context. And if the person still doesn't re repent, is still not restored, then it goes to the church leadership. And this would be the church then on one. So you have one on one, two or three on one, the church on one. Of course, this step involves then the elders getting involved, kind of a pre-step before they would tell it to the church. But the whole point of telling it to the church is not to say, did you hear about so-and-so? The whole point of the church, uh, telling it to the church is say, listen, friends, it's part of our responsibility to care for one another. I, I need to let you know about this person. And we need to be doing all we can to pray for them because they're, they're wandering. And they, they need to repent and they need to be restored. So call them, seek them out, and, and seek to lovingly restore them. Sometimes at that time, we don't, we don't talk about what the specific issue is. The, the specific issue is that they're unrepentant. So this is not bad-mouthing people. This is a church loving on one another. It's like, this is, you know, this is tough. I realize it's tough. Can it be abused? Yes, and it has. But that doesn't mean that we don't carry it out in a right way. And once you tell it to the church, you exhaust that step, you give it time, and ultimately with the ongoing rejection, that person, by virtue of their ongoing rejection, is saying, I don't want to be a part of the church anymore. And so that person is formally put out of the church and treated as an unbeliever. That may or may not mean that they're an unbeliever, but that's how they are to be treated. How are we to treat unbelievers? We are to love them. <laughs> We're to be gracious to them. Okay, so the, the, it's 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 not a it's not a harshness, but there is there is a, there's a there's a firmness that is necessary in this process if the person is unrepentant. So that's that's Matthew, and then we have we have Jude, and <laughs> I think Jude's strategy is quick, and it's swift. Snatch them from the fire. <laughs> And there are times that's what you need to do. I mean, there are times when maybe some brothers need to get together and, and chase down another brother who is in the midst of something and say, wake up. Right? These are all different methods. But what's, what's the goal here? What's, the goal is restoration. The goal is to win your brother. The goal is to help carry their burdens. Those are the three things that we have here. Burden bearers, loving confronters, fire snatchers. Now, I would like to add then some words that would help describe how then we go through this process. First of all, we go prayerfully. Now, it's interesting that in, in this passage in Matthew chapter 18, one we often quote about prayer is actually not about prayer at all. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them, is actually not talking about prayer specifically. It's talking about restoration. But in that restoration, we need to be people of prayer. Secondly, we go lovingly. Because we are family, we're true friends in the gospel. We go humbly because we know very well that one day this could be us. God forbid, but it could be. Fourth, we go respectfully. 
They're your peers. They're your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and although in our hearts we may be angry at what they're doing, we still need to minister to them in a respectful way. Fifth, we go clearly. In other words, we state the issues biblically. We state them with clarity. We make sure that that the, the sin that they continue to commit is being reinforced as sin from God's word. And then we go expectantly. And by expectantly, what I mean is we serve our brother or sister through this process, expecting one or of two responses. The first response would be repentance, where this person is turning away from their sin and back to the truth of Christ and his glorious gospel. Or there is the response of rebellion, a digging in of the heels which may end up in them being put out of the church where they will be out of the protection of the church. Now, it's interesting as the Apostle Paul speaks to the Corinthian church in his first letter, there's someone who is committing incest in the church, and the people are like, oh, isn't it great? You know, grace covers it. These people are here. And he's like, no, 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 no. That person should be dealt with and put out. And then in the next chapter, or so the next book, he writes back, and, and they're, they're, they're mistreating this person who's repented. He's like, no, no, no. We need to treat them now in this way. But it's interesting in the language he uses, he talks about that person being delivered unto Satan. And when you hear that, you're like, you're thinking of, you know, babies being, you know, sacrificed to Molech or something like that, right? And that's not what's going on. He, he's giving an understanding of, of how the world actually works. Let me paint a picture for you. When Jesus comes, the Gospel of, of John tells us, he comes into darkness. And he is the light that has come into darkness. And the reason that kind of language is used is because God has given Satan a domain. It's under God. God is fully in control of it, but Satan has the freedom then as the prince of the power of the air to kind of orchestrate things that are going on in that, in that domain. It's the domain of darkness. And as Jesus Christ came, died on the cross for our sins, established the church, these churches became places of refuge in the darkness. You getting the picture here? Darkness, 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 church, light, 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 light. And I like to think of the church at times in this context as being like an umbrella, right? Now, I, I tell this joke all the time. If you've heard it before, it's okay. When I was younger, I had a friend play golf, love golf, and he wanted a, an umbrella for Christmas, a golf umbrella. Now, this is growing up in England. You understand, it rains a lot. So we're out on the golf course, swinging away, and it starts to rain. And I pull out my umbrella, pop it up, my friend pulls out his umbrella, pops it up, and my friend who got this umbrella for Christmas will not pull out his umbrella. And we say, hey, John, why don't you pull out your umbrella? And he says, I don't want to get it wet. <laughs> True story. Okay? And here's the point. In the domain of darkness, Satan has freedom. And imagine Satan raining down his schemes and his efforts. The place of refuge and protection for that is the church. You may not realize it, you may not understand it, 
But one of the blessings of the church is that you are protected by being part of the church from the influences of Satan. You get in the picture here. So the moment you are put out of the church, you are delivered unto what? Satan. You're put back in his domain. So that by what you experience in your sinfulness, in your stubbornness, in your rebellion, is the full brunt of Satan without the benefit of the church. And the goal of that is so that he would be restored. So this is the expectation. It's one or the other. Either way, God is going to seek to bring that person back through those means. Now, although this is a difficult topic, my friends, it is full of reminders and lessons that show us how beautiful the body of Christ really is. Let's jump ahead now to this last part, the joy of serving. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James continues by revealing that this ministry of pursuit and rescue is a serious matter. Let him know what the stakes are. And what are the stakes? Well, nothing less than life or death. Paul Tripp is helpful here. He says this, do you know why sin doesn't scare us? Do you know why we can wander away? Because we tell ourselves that it's something less than life or death. Friends, we, we tell ourselves it's not such a big thing. We tell ourselves it won't hurt us. We tell ourselves we can handle it or just this once won't hurt or we didn't really mean that. That really wasn't me. Friends, we need to go find a mirror and look at our reflection and say to our reflection, you are the biggest liar I know. You're arrogant, you're foolish, and you're headstrong. You need to wake up and listen to what James is saying. And friends, when you and I wander towards something that is dangerous, destructive, and life-altering, it, it's called death. And you and I are called to live our lives worthy of our calling, worthy of our identity in Christ. But when we wander, we start to, to wander in the direction of death, away from life. And isn't that what the well-known proverb says? There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And this is where the wisdom of the world comes in and preaches lies to us. Here's the biggest lie wanderers believe. They think that wandering away from the truth is going to bring them life, joy, and satisfaction. And to some degree, for a small season, it might. But the reality is they're wandering toward death, misery, and emptiness. And when someone in the body of Christ becomes aware of another brother or sister's wandering and brings them back, they become the means by which God is at work in their lives. And here, James emphasizes two things that happen. 
Know that God is, at, first of all, know that God is at work through you. See, it's not, it's not you who actually brings the person back, right? It's God who's doing that. And it's God ultimately who will save their souls from, from death. It's God who covers that multitude of sins. But God uses means. God is ultimately carrying on his work of rescue through his children. But you and I get to be a part of that. And it's not that God needs us in the sense of he can't carry things out without us, but he welcomes us and he puts responsibility on our shoulders as fellow brothers and sisters to do the work that he's commanded for us. So we, we know, first of all, that God is at work through us. Secondly, we know how God is at work through us. These are incentives now for us to do what he's called us to. We know that, that, that he will save his soul from death. What does Jesus mean by this? Or James mean by this, I should say. Well, if he's talking about someone who is only a professing Christian, it speaks to the fact that the friend's pursuit and subsequent rescue has been a rescue of conversion. And if he's talking about the true Christian who's been deceived by the devil, he may have in mind that individual's spiritual condition is close to death. And so they're rescuing them from a spiritual deadness. But then it says you'll cover a multitude of sins. James is referring here to this, this theme or this thread that begins in Genesis and finds its focal point on the cross. The blood of bulls and goats provided a temporary covering for the sin of Israel. But when Jesus comes, he's the the sacrifice once for all. He is the sacrifice that truly does cover our sins. So it's his suffering, his blood, his death on the cross that covers these sins. You see, when we take on the God-breathed responsibility of being rescuers who pursue the wanderer, we find ourselves being used by God to take those people back to Christ where they'll find healing, hope, satisfaction, forgiveness, restoration, family, strength, wisdom, support. This is what we get to do. It's not easy, but it's our responsibility. Friends, are you wandering this morning? Wandering in your walk with God, your thought life, your marriage, your parenting, your behavior at work, your behavior at school, your behavior when no one is, is looking? Are you wondering? Or maybe the question is, are you rescuing this morning? Do you have a, a burden for someone this morning that God is, is nudging you to step out of your comfort zone, seek to love with his word and a loving confrontation so they can get back to Christ? Friends, we, we all know that God is sovereign. We all know that he knows everything, that he sees everything, that no one can hide from him, but we must all be careful that our good theology doesn't get in the way of Christian duty. God does all those things, but he's called us to do certain things too. And so brothers and sisters, we can wonder, and God is calling his church to be pursuers and rescuers. Are you willing to take on that responsibility? That's what James is saying. This is what I'm calling you to do. Now, as we bring things to a close,
just want to say in just a few minutes here, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a time for us to pause and reflect on our walk with God. It's an opportunity to revisit what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. As we take the bread, we remember that Jesus Christ came to this earth, took upon himself the form of a servant, was born in the the likeness of man, who humbled himself even to the point of death. He understands our frailty, the struggles and temptations that we face. And as we drink the, 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 the juice, we remember that Jesus died a sacrificial death and paid for our sins, past, present, and future. Yet in spite of those wonderful truths, we can wander. And we do. And so we agree with the hymn writer when he says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Friends, we must not come to the Lord's table casually or take it lightly. We must come eagerly to be nourished afresh by his mercy and grace. Our hearts must be honest that we need the Lord's Supper because we're so prone to wander, but our hearts must be hungry to reflect on the beautiful implications of the gospel that we're privileged to be the recipients of. And friends, there's nothing magical or mysterious about the elements. But it is in the taking of the elements that we stand afresh on the solid ground of the good news of Jesus Christ, and he is to us the rock of our salvation. If the storms come and the winds blow, we know that because of him, We have a sure footing and an eternal hope. That is the power of the cross, my friends. And it's the power of the cross that drives us to remain steadfast under trial for the glory of God. Lord, help us today. What you have given us this morning is a huge responsibility. And Lord, we've grown up in a church in America where most people are happy to come and experience the, 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 the joys of gathering and being involved and seeing things happen and, and worship and song. And we all enjoy that kind of stuff. But Lord, there are other responsibilities that you give us too ones that seem daunting and uncomfortable that we would rather just walk away from, give to someone else. And yet you have given them to us. Would you put in us today a heart and a desire personally to be a person of rescue? for our church corporately to be a place where we know that sin is going to rise up but when it does that we will pursue one another based on your word faithfully seeking to honor you and to call that person back to repentance sometimes Lord it means carrying someone's burden until they're ready
ready to carry it themselves. Sometimes it means going through the, the, the formal process that you've laid out for us as far as church discipline is concerned. And we want to see restoration, but Lord, sometimes people dig their heels in and it's hard. Sometimes, Lord, we just need to be bold and snatch people out of the fire. Whatever it is, Lord, would you give us that sense of responsibility before you and to one another to recognize that we all wander and that when we do, we need each other to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, take this book that we have studied. May it just fill our souls, Lord, with a, a desire to pursue godliness and maturity in our walk with you. And would you be glorified, we ask now in your precious name. Amen.